Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So it is Payrolls Friday, your median estimate in our Bloomberg survey, 190,000 added to the month of May. The unemployment rate expected to stay at 3.9% and the closely watched wage growth figure, the estimate there, 2.6% year on year in line with the previous read. I'm really pleased to say to give us his personal read is Tom Porcelli, RBC Capital Markets Chief US Economist who joins us in the studio. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Good to see you. What are you looking for this morning? So we're looking for 215. Uh, headline and private. Uh, and we're looking for a 3.9 on the unemployment rate, so no change there. Uh, look, I, I think, you know, let's be, let me be the only honest economist on this point. Wow. Uh, whether it comes in uh, at consensus 190, I think you said, or my 215, yeah. or even comes a little lighter than that. Uh, to be, t- be honest, it's still very consistent with a totally rock-solid labor backdrop. Um, Tom and I were talking about this on, on TV uh, earlier. I mean, I think just look at sentiment with regard to the labor backdrop. Um, the conference board's uh, um, sentiment measure is uh, uh, as, as good as any. Uh, and what you see is that people continue to say that they have a, they're holding a really positive view on labor. So um, I, I think from a, not just from a numbers perspective, do I think things look good, but from a sentiment perspective, um, people continue to feel good about the backdrop. What does it say about where we are that we can still get prints of 200K? Uh, so, so I love this question because I really think it gets to drive home this one point. I think that there's you, a heck of a lot of people. You my questions. <laughs> you but, like but Tom, I love you though. Oh, and he doesn't love yeah. me. <laughs> God, um, Tom. Continue. Which is why I like being on with both of you. I get the best of both worlds. Uh, <laughs> So I would say that what it what it really drives home um, is, you know, we're we're probably not quite at full employment yet in in the United States, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think of full employment as somewhere between four and four and a half percent. I think it's reasonable to actually wonder aloud: Are we really between three and a half and four percent from a full employment perspective? And if that's true, if that thesis is true, then what that means is that there's still pipeline wage pressure. Again, something else Tom and I talked about on on air a little uh, earlier. Yeah. But I would say that if you consider that. Um, the tighter labor markets get, or as labor markets get the most tight, i.e. once you get down toward full employment, that's when wage pressures really start to take off. So I would tell you that I think there's pipeline pressure, not just actual pressure today. Tom, you're thinking out loud. Do you get the impression that the Federal Reserve is doing the same thing? I do. In fact, you know, look at the beige book. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the Fed's homegrown piece, right? It's within the beige book. We have this great, we have a couple of great indicators within the beige book. Um, we've, we've sort of scraped the beige book over the decades, and we have something called the beige book labor shortage index. Um, and if you overlay that with the unemployment rate, it actually has a fantastic relationship. Um, and guess what you continue to hear from the beige book? Um, that companies are really having a heck of a hard time finding qualified workers, and they're paying yeah, okay. up for it. And we should say this with great, great love and honor to the late Richard Yamarone of Bloomberg, who was really out front and re reaffirming the value of the beige book and what you see there. Yeah. And what this comes down to, Tom Porcelli, everyone listening coast to coast is saying, okay, raise wages. So what and I, you'll find the people. Yeah, so it's happening, Come right? Come on! So I, I, I would tell you that it's 100% happening already. So look at, so the Atlanta Fed, right? Again, just picking on sort of the Fed data. Um, look at the Atlanta Fed. 
They have um, the wage tracker. The wage tracker. And when the breakdown of the tracker is pretty interesting, right? They have um, wage a wage tracker for job leavers, so someone who left a job to go take another, uh, and for job stayers, someone who's just staying at a job. Um, And the spread is about a full percentage point higher for people that are leaving to take a job. So you're being rewarded for taking a job right now. Um, So yeah, I think it's already happening. And again, it's a speed question, right? Like, is it happening to uh, the speed to which people want it to happen? That is a philosophical view. You know, like, I, 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 I can't get into that philosophical view on that. Uh, tell me what your expectations were, and I'll tell you if you were going to be wrong. Yeah. You, you know, um, but the, the the reality is wage pressures have already materialized and will continue to materialize, given some of the things we just talked about. Tom Pulselli, great to catch up with you this morning and um, to get your thoughts on the on the labor market and payrolls. Coming out at 8.30 Eastern, Tom Pulselli joining us from RBC, the Capital Markets Chief. U.S. economist, Tom. Now, we would usually talk to Mr. Porcelli for uh, two to three hours here, but we can't today because we have national news. Not a trade war. I'm not willing to say that yet, but boy, was yesterday eventful. As we try to do on surveillance, we try to bring you the nation's experts, people really thinking about this, and that would be Edward Alden, Ted Alden of the Council on Foreign Relations. I can't say enough about his book, Failure to Adjust. Ted Alden, what is the failure to adjust that President Trump is doing right now? Well, he's, you know, his basic approach is that there are, you know, a, a number of Americans who've not done well in uh, in recent years. You know, I talk about them as being those left behind in my book. And President Trump's approach to this is to say, well, the foreigners are to blame for what's gone wrong in your lives. And he's, you know, going after our allies on trade. He's obviously doing the same thing on immigration in different ways. So so he's really trying to externalize this problem. And and I fear, unfortunately, he's going to make the problem much bigger. Uh, you know, I know the economic news is pretty good. Right. But, but there's a huge layer of uncertainty here as a result of these trade actions. In the, in the micro theory, the microeconomics of tariffs in the supply demand, the typical Marshallian cross, there's all of this stuff, and part of it is the deadweight loss. Is the deadweight loss of this trade war different than the eight deadweight losses of the eight last trade wars going back to the 17th century? We don't know the answer to that question yet. I, I mean, yeah, we there's don't. always, you know, there's always huge deadweight loss in a trade war, and there will be in this one too. We just, we just don't know how big it's going to get. I mean, we this may be as far as it goes. If I had to predict, I. I would argue that there's several more shoes to drop, but uh, but we just don't know yet. This president is obviously very unpredictable, and uh, and and so he keeps us all guessing about what the next move is going to be. Ted, is this something we could characterize at this point as a trade war? If this is as far as it goes, um, I, I would actually, you know, and, you and really? I'm I'm among me, those who's why, Ted? I, I'm among those who's been very reluctant to use that term. But to me, a trade war is tit for tat, tariff retaliation outside the rules of the trading system. And the U.S. action here, this claim that this is based on national security is a bogus claim. It's a pretty clear violation of the WTO rules. And in fact, the retaliation by uh, our trading partners also falls outside WTO rules. They, they are making up this story that this isn't a national security move. It's a conventional safeguard. And therefore, they are justified in, you know, in the language of trade agreements, suspending uh, equivalent concessions. So it's bogus on both sides. Okay, so to but- me, that really is trade war territory. How is aluminum a national security concern? 
Well, I mean, it can be, right? And so can steel be. They're important for, uh, yeah. for a lot of defense applications, for, uh, you know, for airplanes, for tanks, for other things. You can at times make an argument that these things are very important for national security. What was very strange about the way this administration approached it is every time these analyses have been done in the past, allies were included as part of the defense industrial base. You know, the notion that Canada somehow would not be a reliable supplier of steel and aluminum to the United States in time of war is ludicrous. And yet that is the interpretation that the Trump administration made in order to justify these actions. So, Ted, what we have here really is a disagreement over the approach the administration is taking, because I find it very hard to disagree with the problems the administration identifies. There are quite clearly substantial barriers to entry in foreign markets and heavily subsidized industries elsewhere. We do not have a level playing field. So, Ted, let's talk more about the approach. You've taken issue with the approach. What should they be doing to get these barriers to entry to be lowered, to level the playing field in the way they desire? Well, if you look at where the biggest barriers to entry are, they're in China. And, you know, this administration has picked trade fights with its closest allies instead of building some kind of coalition to go after the underlying problems in China. To the extent that there are barriers in other countries, and sure they are, you know, there are issues with, uh, you know, dairy access in Canada. The Europeans have a higher auto tariff than, than we do. There are negotiating procedures to try to deal with those things under NAFTA, under the WTO. The Europeans are willing to do a bilateral deal. They have been for a long time. So there are other ways to go after these problems. This administration's theory is that if they threaten and punish enough, other countries will make bigger concessions than they would have otherwise. So far, with the exception of South Korea, which agreed to a significant cut in its steel exports to the United States, that theory has proven to be a failure. Instead, other countries are hitting back. They're they're not knuckling under to this kind of pressure. Ted, thank you so much for this timely interview. I'll put out folks and feature on Tom King Books, Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. And now, folks, for your briefing on Deutsche Bank, we are advantaged by Elisa Martinuzzi. Deutsche Bank stock is down 140% since Elisa started writing about Deutsche Bank more than a few years ago. Elisa, good morning. What is different now versus the rationalizations of a year ago, or frankly, the rationalizations of Ackerman any number of years ago? What's different right now? I think if we want to take this particular moment and this particular um, barrage of bad news and compare it to um, the last time they were in a similar situation in 2016, you want to look at two numbers. One is the liquidity buffer, and and that shows how much liquidity the bank is sitting on at the moment, and that is 30% higher than it was in 2016 when it was a bigger bank. So that points to the bank being in a much more comfortable position right now. Um, And the other metrics that investors might look at is the, the, the measure of financial strength. The common equity tier one ratio. And again, the, that number is significantly higher than it was in 2016 when the bank was okay. in the midst of discussions about a large but fine. You and yeah. I have read the articles, Elisa, of liquidity versus solvency. And mm-hmm. this is really what happens when trust is at risk. Are we at that point where with Deutsche Bank, their customers are saying, let's measure the liquidity, let's measure the solvency? 
we're not getting that sense at all at the moment. Um, okay. Clearly, they, you know, the bank has communicated that it has been a difficult quarter. Um, and we've seen that for, for the last couple of years, the erosion of uh, business that the bank has suffered, and not just in businesses where it's retrenching, but beyond those, just because, you know, clients are not are not sure whether the bank is going to be around with the same remit in a, in a couple of years. And that's led to them losing some business that they didn't want to lose. And I think what they'll, investors will be looking for quickly from Christian Serving, the new CEO, is that he's able to draw a line under that and then, you know, put a stop to that erosion and, and, and see the bank growing in the businesses it wants to keep. And Eliza, we should highlight what you've basically touched on, is that the downgrade from Standard & Poor's in the last 24 hours was not about liquidity. In fact, they highlighted that being... Okay, it was about execution risk of the overall strategy and significant execution risk. Um, what can Christian Saving actually do to to push away these concerns around the execution of his strategy? Well, one thing they'll be looking at is you know how much um, you know the costs. He can keep costs under control, um, and that was one area that the previous management failed in. And they'll also want to see that um, you know he's pushing through the job cuts that he's announced. Um, and that he's retrenching where he said he would. So it's really the execution and delivering on that execution. And that, as other banks have shown, when they've undertaken under, with similar restructurings, take, for example, UBS, is something they have to prove every quarter to maintain investor support. Eliza, we learned yesterday in several reports, too, I believe, that the, uh, the bank, the US subsidiary of the bank, is on the FDIC problem bank list. Um, how much of an issue is that, if that is indeed true? I think, it, you know, you'd probably be looking at a couple of uh, concerns. One is obviously uh, the, the, the mark that it leaves on the bank, the, the PR associated with being on that list, which obviously isn't good. And you've also got to um, think about potential restrictions on, on, on some of the decision-making process that we understand might have been imposed on the bank. Um, but, you know, having said that, there's no, there's no measure, you know, sense yet that it's led to a particular reaction from clients um, as a result of being on that list. And, and at the moment, you'd have to say that morale, Eliza, must absolutely stink at the bank. And I think Christian Zaving, the CEO of Deutsche Bank, acknowledging that fact. How difficult is it working inside Deutsche Bank at the moment? Well, it's actually quite quite interesting because um, unlike his predecessor, Christian Savings' message hitherto had been rather positive. Today's message was, you know, it seemed seemingly much more realistic in that he's acknowledging that, you know, staff is, you know, fed up with all yeah. the bad news. Um, and it was, you know, much more in tone like Klein used to be in underscoring okay. just how tough that situation is right now. Here are the board members, Mark Platcher, Klee, Garrett Cox, Brzezinski, Heider, Rose, Irgang, Mettings, Bohr, Dushik, Simon, Eschelbach, Schultz, and a few others. What in God's name are they doing? Well, I think what we've seen in the recent management reshuffle, which was, you know, rather uh, tumultuous, is that, you know, the, the, the governance um, and then the governments under Paul Achneitler, the chairman's leadership, has been questioned by investors because so much management change over the course of the last three or four years, so many strategy revamps, I mean, we're talking about three in three years, have raised questions about, you know, exactly what you're asking, you know, what, you know, what has the board been doing? This has been brilliant. Elisa, thank you so much, and thank you for your years of work on Italian, German, and European banking as well. Elisa Martinuzzi uh, with Bloomberg uh, News this morning. And now joining us 
William Gross of Janice Henderson. Uh, Bill Gross, let's let's get to the jobs report before we go on to other issues, including our uh, trade policy of the nation. But this is, Bill Gross, a Make America Great Again jobs report. Does that just solidify rate increases? And can those rate increases be uniformly beneficial for America? Well, I think it solidifies uh, certainly June, Tom, and that's not saying much because that was 95% uh, uh, going in. But, you know, uh, perhaps another one, if these types of numbers continue, I, th- I think the most important number to me was the average hourly earnings at 0.3 and now annualized at uh, 2.7%. And so, you know, are we uh, making <coughs> America great again? Um, yeah. I guess from the standpoint of jobs and GDP, um, inflation, moving higher in terms of wages. And so, um, you know, it, it's pretty much of a scenario where the Fed, uh, the Fed hawks, basically think that they can move forward once, twice, some say three times, I say uh, June is the last. Oh, that's an important and that's a distinctive feature. We'll get to that in a moment. But Bill Gross, what's so important here, and this goes to your work on financial repression out years, we get a higher rate regime, fine. But with that higher inflation, can you see a higher real rate? Can you see higher real wages? Well, we have seen higher real rates, actually, Tom, um, although yields have come down in the last uh, several weeks. You know, most of the increase uh, has, has been on the real side, on the tip side in terms of their yields. We have a 10-year real yield around 75 basis points. Um, a five-year, a little bit less. And so, you know, real yields are, are, are not what they were, but they're better than zero. And, and it's not exactly the financial repression that we knew uh, three or four years ago with interest rates close to zero, but it's getting better. Still, I would say that we're in for a, a long period of financial repression as real yields that uh, should be around 2% real or at 75 basis points. So the the average saver is being robbed by a percent or two a year. Bill, I did want to take the opportunity to talk about your performance. It's been a um, a week which many people have reported on your fund's performance. And I think it's only right and only fair that we give you the opportunity and the right to respond to some of what has been criticism um, of your strategy. Can you just walk us through what did happen this week, Bill, and how you set up coming out the other side? Well, yeah, uh, give me some time on this. And, and the strategy, basically, which was the basis of your question, has been a, a strategy that has uh, been short the German Bund and uh, long uh, U.S. Treasuries. You know, the, the spread between the two is historically high. Uh, for instance, on, on the 10-year U.S. Treasury versus the 10-year Bund, it's uh, 250 basis points. It's never been at that level. And for those that would cite uh, inflation differences, I would say, you know, in terms of the linker market uh, for Bunds and the TIPS market for U.S., on the five-year basis, uh, real yields on five-year TIPS are are 220 basis points difference, 2.2% higher in the U.S. than in Germany, and I would suggest that at some point, um, you know, this has got to reverse because the, the two, Germany and the United States, are equal credits. And what's the difference is simply the, the, the function between the ECB in terms of their monetary policy and the Fed in terms of their monetary policy. And so, um, you know, that was the basis for the, uh, you know, the, the bad day and the bad trade, but uh, certainly not the basis for some of the 
negative publicity from right. the New York <clears throat> Times that intertwined my uh, financial trade with my divorce of six to 12 months ago. I, I think it was outrageous, and I can talk about that, but you probably prefer to talk about some other things. Well, I don't know. We can talk about that, Bill. We've got a lot of time here as well. I, I don't know. I'd rather talk about your stamp collection or the 49ers. <laughs> but I want, this is so important, folks. I want to bring this in because, you know, we, we showed the articles the other day on Mr. Gross and on how Janice Henderson unconstrained took a hit here off Italy. I want to go to the chart, and then John Farrell, I'm going to go to you to go to Mr. Gross. This is what Bill Gross is talking about, folks. We're going to use the Bloomberg. Ramey, come in here. This is the linkage of the U.S. and Germany, and Mr. Gross is looking at sustained higher U.S. yields, and at the same time, this reduced German 10-year yield, and there's been a little bit of upset here, John. So that, that gap, John, between Germany, U.S. 10 years... Yeah is massive is the only way to describe it. Bill Gross, we are not going to make you talk about a divorce um, live on Bloomberg TV and live on Bloomberg Radio, so let's keep oh, it on darn, the market. Darn you it, was real. Excuse me, no, we have a few other divorces I, I, we could talk we, about besides we can Mr. Talk, Gross. We could talk about a few of Tom's, um, that's for sure. We can talk yourself, about, Buster. We could talk about the bond market. <laughs> Bill, let's talk about bonds. The JGB market for such a long time was called the widow maker, and I just wonder whether the bond market could become the same thing. What are your thoughts on that, Bill? Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about bonds. Why are they so low in yield and why uh, basically are half of the, uh, the bonds in, in terms of the maturities all the way out to 2024, so we're going out six years, why are they still negative? Well, uh, obviously for one reason, uh, the ECB still is exceedingly low in terms of their short rate. But secondly, and you bring up Italy, you know, I, I haven't really dealt in Italy or been short Italy or long Italy. Uh, that hasn't been the problem with the trade. But Italy affects German bonds because ultimately if Italy, um, from the standpoint of a, a political uh, direction, you know, decides to leave the EU, then the consequences are severe. And, and Germany, uh, if the EU breaks up, you know, back in the day when, when Greece was uh, a significant problem, there was talk about Germany leaving the EU because they didn't want to share the burden. And so if, if Germany leaves the EU, then all of a sudden their bonds, their bonds, uh, become denominated in uh, German marks, and that makes them appreciate significantly. So Italy affects the German bond market uh, basically because of the potential for Italy leaving the EU, and that's what's happened in the past week or two. Bill Gross with us with Janice Henderson. We will return. We've got lots to talk about, as John correctly mentions, really interesting dynamics within the bond market that Mr. Gross and all other bond managers have had to deal with. And of course, the backdrop here is a really strong jobs report, which good, again reaffirms stronger dollar DXY higher as well with yen 109.51, uh, euro 116.83, uh, lifting yields in the bond market using the 30-year bond as a proxy, 3.06%. We had a lot higher yields here not too long ago. Bloomberg Surveillance with William Gross of Janice Anderson. We continue... John, bring in Alan Kruger. Professor again. Kruger, back with us. Um, Alan, I know we had some problem with the connection. You are joining us from Europe, so we appreciate your time ahead of that payroll to release. Let's just talk about the president's tweet. Looking forward to seeing the employment numbers at 830 
this morning. It seems like a very innocent tweet. The problem is for market participants fully aware that the president has access to those numbers um, before they're released. How unprecedented is it for the president to be talking about the payrolls number the morning of ahead of time? Uh, I can't remember another example, of certainly a president tweeting or even commenting on the job numbers. They're, they're treated like state secrets. So uh, it's rather surprising. Within that, Professor Kruger, is how this is actually done. What do you do? Hand an envelope to the president and say, here's one statistic? Does he get a full briefing? I mean, is there a procedure to this, like the military guy that carries the bomb codes behind the president? How do you actually tell a president what the jobs report will be? Excellent question. Uh, First of all, Tom, going back, uh, to the Nixon administration, the Office of Management and Budget uh, has procedures for how sensitive economic indicators are to be treated. And uh, they uh, require that government uh, administration officials do not comment on sensitive numbers until after one hour after they're released. Uh, it dictates who can receive the numbers ahead of time and how they should be uh, uh, transmitted. Um, different presidents do things differently. Uh, I could tell you with President Obama, on most uh, Thursdays before the job release, I would head over to the Oval Office and brief him on the numbers in person. I'd also bring a one-page memo with me, which talked about uh, the top-line numbers on job growth and the payroll survey, the unemployment rate, labor force participation, wage growth, uh, the key uh, uh, components of the report. and. Of course, if something else stood out and there was an issue with the weather or something like that, the memo would cover it. But normally, I would spend 10, 15 minutes briefing the president on the report. And if he was uh, not in the White House, uh, sometimes I would reach him by secure phone. I remember I called him once on Air Force One on a secure phone. Uh, I called him the night before the Democratic Convention, before his speech at the convention on a secure phone. Um, and I can't remember a time where I just uh, sent in a memo and didn't actually talk to him by phone or in person. I am seeing, and we got to be very careful, folks. We welcome all of you worldwide with Alan Kruger of Princeton University. These are delicate matters, and John and I and our team, Colin Tipton and others, we're really trying to keep this in order. Futures were up 12. They're now fractionally up 13. And, you know, Alan, if I look at a log intraday chart of the two-year yield, the fact is I have a move of 113 pips from 2.44-ish up to 2.4513, which I would suggest, Professor, correlates with that word good, doesn't it? Well, you know, the reason why the OMB has its procedures is to prevent unnecessary politicization of the numbers, which the Nixon administration did, uh, and to uh, reduce unnecessary volatility. I think at this point, Alan, see how he said like next to nothing. It was very Mary, diplomatic. Just, he doesn't he because doesn't I would really... also I would also take the view this morning, Tom, that it's very hard to infer price action off the back of this tweet. Fair. What I, what I do think this Fair. tweet raises, though, is a question as to whether that privileged access should ultimately exist. What are the benefits of having that privileged access? Why should the president? of any colour, Republican, Democrat, whatever their political stripes might be, Alan, why should they have access to that data? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, John. And um, 
We want the statistical agencies to be independent. We want them to have credibility. I think it's very unfortunate that people have criticized uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, made unfounded uh, allegations about them making up the numbers. Well, we've got another problem there. That's right where I was going to go with my next question. Let's leave it there with Alan Kruger. We thank him from Trento, Italy. been an extraordinary morning in the history of economic analysis, economic statistics, and the communication of said statistics. We were honored with Alan Kruger with us earlier today, who was cordially scathing in his critique of the president releasing uh, an early tweet. Um, Lawrence Summers, uh, as well, put out a tweet uh, that said, uh, uh, quite simple, Lawrence Summers put out a tweet, the Washington Post has, if during the Clinton or Obama administrations there had been a statement from the president or anyone senior official in the morning before the employment report, it would have been a major scandal with all sorts of investigations following on. Let Moments the, ago... Yeah, let me share this with you. Just a counterpoint to that, uh, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow says that President Trump knew just, about the jobs report last okay. night. I, it, yeah, I, I get it. And he says it wasn't meant to send a signal. Here's the reality, folks, we deal with before we bring in Jason Furman. Here's the reality. You and I, Pim, can't move markets. And I've been honored. It's a very flattering. I moved the Japanese yen once. Great. Blah, blah, blah. We're not here to move the two-year yield. The fact is, I observed the two-year yield with log convexity off of the tweet go up ever so slightly. That's our precursor to bringing in Dr. Furman. He's a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Jason, you were out first, and you were scathing. Discuss the President's tweet. You know, Tom, I got these numbers every month in advance. I was authorized to share them with the chair of the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Secretary, the NEC Director, and the President of the United States. I took that really, really seriously and worked hard to protect the integrity of the data. Um, I can tell you that if President Obama had done this tweet, I would have had exactly the same reaction and conveyed it directly to him and everyone else in the White House that it was a major, major problem that he had done it. Um, and I would hope that that's what's happening right now in the White House. I mean, I'm seeing Mr. Kudlow on CNBC as we speak uh, rationalizing this. And I'm sure that, you know, you've always been collegial with Dr. Hassett, the present uh, uh, chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. What do they suggest to General Kelly or to the president so this doesn't happen again? I don't know. I, you know, in one would be you know, reminding him of the seriousness and importance of this and telling him to make sure it doesn't happen again. A second option would be not giving him the number. A third option would be BLS not giving the number to the White House. And a fourth that BLS might want to consider is doing what is done by government statistical agencies for other data, which is when part of the data comes out in advance, they provide the full release immediately before the release time. Um, and it's something that they might need to be prepared to do um, in the event that that ever happens in the future. I think these are you know, 
These are all terrible options. Um, I don't think we should do any of them. I, I don't think we should be happy about doing any of them, but I think we have to um, we have to be seriously considering it. Uh, well, you know, uh, Mr. Furman, I'm wondering, just to uh, play devil's advocate here, uh, is it possible that, you know, in previous years uh, that, you know, there were news conferences uh, that were called suddenly uh, for the non-farm payroll report on a Friday, and you'd have a news conference if that was good, but not a news conference if it was bad. I mean, hasn't this kind of already been telegraphed in one way or another? Is it all that different now in a world of instant communication? Should we just expect this to happen? Nothing's going to stay confidential. Oh, oh if we actually took pains to avoid that. So if... You know, you know, if we would have gotten President Obama the number at 5 p.m., but he was going to be out at 5.30 and taking a question, we'd wait until after that. Interesting. Just to make sure it wasn't even in yeah. his head. No, no, so I, under, he... I, I understand all that, but I, but I guess what I'm trying to get at, and, and this is not to come down one way or the other, it's to recognize that the world is a very different place when no communication that is electronic is any longer confidential, and that we live in a world you know, where but, instantaneous but, con uh, communication exists. It's just the, a fact. The, I would suggest, and this is away from Dr. Furman's expertise, we've got a president who's alone and by himself, and the ramifications are here. The question, uh, Jason Furman, is if we've seen this, and yes, we saw the market move, I'm willing to say that now, folks, even though I wasn't saying it in real time, what do we do next month? Do we need to have a White House debate on this, Jason Furman? Or do we just say, oh, it's the president, that's the way it is? I just think, you know, if we are in a world of instantaneous communication, then maybe the president shouldn't get this anymore because, um, you know, it makes me worried. You know, I'm also worried, by the way, Tom, the president talks to a lot of people late at night on his phone president who likes to brag about things, I think without even being malicious, without intending to be conveying insider information, you know, is he talking to his friends at night and telling them, hey, you know, yeah. great jobs number coming tomorrow? Yeah. I don't have confidence that that's not happening. The, I really wish I could say I did, but I, yeah. you know, I'm not sure. The question comes up, and uh, let us move on now, is this will be a topic of uh, certainly within economics. And I, I, Damian Paletta has it on the cover of the Washington Post. So it's not just like an inside Bloomberg story, folks. Uh, this has really reached the sort of the zeitgeist of the nation right now as well. Dr. Furman, 3.8% is a victory lap for anybody. Is our 3% unemployment the same as it was in the 1950s? You know, we have dysfunctions in our labor market we didn't have in the 1950s. We have a much lower participation rate for men than we had um, in the 1950s. Um, we also have a higher one for women um, than we had in the 1950s. I think from a cyclical perspective, though, assessing what the Fed is doing, how we're doing in the recovery from the recession, um, the unemployment rate is the right number to focus on. And that number tells yeah. a, a very positive story about our recovery. Tom Purcelli earlier today noticed the vector of real wage growth actually rising. Do you agree with that? And can we get to a positive and constructive real wage growth? We're not there yet, but can we get there? Uh, you know, it's going to be hard. 
um, the biggest constraint on our real wage growth is our lack of productivity growth. You know, if you look at the difference between what we've seen in real wage growth over the last couple of years and what we saw in real wage growth in the 1990s, um, that difference is almost entirely explained by we had much faster productivity then than now. So I think a tight labor market will help. I'm in favor of a tight labor market. Um, it's one of the dials that we have. But until we get more um, innovation, productivity, capital investment in our economy, um, we can't have more sustainable wage growth. Do you believe that there's going to be an acceleration in inflation? We're already seeing some firming up of inflation. And um, I would expect to see more firming up of inflation. Could we have a 2.5% rate um, at some point over the next year? Um, absolutely. Does that um, worry very, very much? Um, not at all. Right. The Fed has said their target is symmetric. I you know, agree it should be symmetric. And, and so, you know, after a lot of years of below two, you know, some years of a bit above two, um, I, I think that would be just fine. Jason Furman, thank you so much. He's the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Greatly appreciate his attendance on short notice this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.